Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Let me bow for a word of prayer before I begin. Father, our Savior Jesus, won our souls at the cross as we've sung about this morning. Thank you. Thank you for such, such wonderful grace shown to us. And we remember him this morning. We worship him this morning, the one who is majestic, the one who is our majesty today. Thank you for him. Lord, we want to exalt our our Savior in his name this morning, even in the preaching of your word, I want to exalt your word itself, that you would draw each of us to yourself this morning. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Well, perhaps something like this uh, has happened to you at some point in life. You, you hear a song, perhaps on, on the radio, and immediately it transports you, transports you back in time, years ago when you first heard the song. And you relive it in your mind, that whole time of life, where you were when you first heard the song, or who you were with when you heard the song. All kinds of, of memories. Now that happened to me not long ago. But not by listening to a song, but by reading a book, this book, called The Best Game Ever, by Jim Reisler. It's Jim Reisler's account of Game 7 of the 1960 World Series between the Pirates and the Yankees on October the 13th of 1960. Bill Mazarowski won the game for Pittsburgh and the series when he homered over the left field wall in the, uh, in the bottom of the ninth inning. Ten to nine was the final score. I was a young boy, age 14, and I saw that home run and I remember it vividly. I was sitting in a barber's chair in a barber shop on Main Street up in Clifton, New Jersey, up north. I saw it happen. I saw it on a, on a small, very small, black and white television set. You remember those, some of you? <laughs> Not many of you do, but some of you do. But as I read this book, I found myself remembering not only that particular game, and what happened, but that whole time of life for me. I was, uh, I was 14 years old. My father had uh, died unexpectedly about six or seven months just prior to that day at age 49. And I remembered that. And I remembered so many events of that era, a time of my own life. I remembered events and friends from that school year, 
Eighth grade, junior high school number 10 in Clifton. So many memories just began to really flood my, my entire soul. Some good, some not so good, but so many memories. Well, as I stand before you here this morning, that game was played 60 years ago. 60 years ago. The years have just absolutely flown by. Now, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced things like that if you're old enough. Perhaps simply by looking at an old photograph and reliving the memories that it uh, conjures up in your own thinking, in your own mind. And if that's not happened to you yet, then perhaps God will give you another, oh, what, 10, 20, 30 or more years and then you'd be able to say, yes, I, I know what that's, what that's like, what that's all about. But I'm not the first one to realize the, the brevity of life. Billy Graham said, the greatest surprise in life to me is the brevity of life. How quick it all is. How fast it all goes by. Well, Moses realized that as well. And under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes about it for us in Psalm 90. The scene as Moses is writing the psalm is the Sinai, the Sinai wilderness, the desert of Sinai. And the children of Israel have been wandering aimlessly around the desert for almost nine to 40 years. It's an exercise in, in, an exercise in absolute futility for these people. And perhaps every morning, Moses would get an updated report of how many of the Israelites died the previous night or the previous day. Remember, an entire generation of Israelites are in the process of dying off. Part of the judgment of God upon them. A whole generation would not make the land of promise. Everyone under the age of, or over the age of 20, would die. Think of the scores of people that that would include. Now, perhaps on this one day or one night, Moses has had all he could take. And so he retreats in his tent and he. I, I picture him just pouring out his heart to God. I believe there are some lessons that we can learn from what Moses writes about the Lord and about life itself and its, its brevity and that we can relate to and apply to our own lives. First of all, we must have the right perspective of God. We must have the right perspective or the right view of God. Notice what he says in verse 1, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So in the midst of all this constant daily death, Moses sort of starts on a on a high point, he remembers God. He remembers who God is, what God is like. 
It says, Lord, you've been my, our, our dwelling place. More literally, you've been our, our sanctuary. You have been our, well, a better word for it, I think, is, is you've been our den, our den, that place of, of comfort. Lord, you've been, you've been my home, so to speak, dwelling place. So Moses sees the Lord as someone who is tender, one who is kind and merciful, even in the midst of judgment, as the people of God are going through. He sees the Lord as an oasis of sorts, an oasis. God to Moses now a place of, of comfort. He's a place of, of warmth. Moses has no comforts. Remember, he's leading over well over a million complaining Israelites as they just wander aimlessly through the desert of Sinai under the leadership of Moses, complaining all the while. What's God like to you this morning? Is he the, the oasis, the oasis of refreshment in your life? that he was to Moses, and how good has God been? I hope you realize that, how good God has been to you in your life, how gracious he's been, how merciful he's been. Hardships? Yes, of course. Untold hardships for each of us. But remember Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet. And in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is pictured walking through the streets of Jerusalem, through the rubble of Jerusalem, crying as he walks, crying as he just sees the destruction, the devastation of the city. The Babylonian army has just got through destroying every aspect of it, including the temple. And Jeremiah is weeping. And he says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So in the midst of destruction and judgment and hardship and trial, he remembers who God is, the faithfulness, the mercy of God. I don't know where you are this morning as far as trials in, in your own life, but who was the first one you went to when that trial began? Was it God? Remember, he's not, he's not a cold God. He's not remote. God was not remote to Moses either. God is my father. As a Christian, God is my father. Paul uses the, the term, he's my Abba father. He's my, my daddy. He's my daddy father. He is the perfect father for me and for you as well. Psalm 103 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. God knows what you are, what I am, what life is like for us, and he knows, he realizes that we are 
dust, absolute dust. And yet he's my father. And God will always be that for me and to me. Because he's never, he never changes. He never, ever changes. And he is stable. My father is a stable person. He is uh, he's steadfast. He's constant. Even when I'm not. He's timeless. My life may be very brief. And certainly it is. And so is yours. But God's not. Moses remembers that God is from everlasting to everlasting. More literally, God is from vanishing point in the past to vanishing point in the future. Eternal, eternal in the heavens. Omniscient, omnipotent, never ever changing. Think of how many, how many things in your life have changed and are always changing. We age, we become infirm, we lose loved ones, we divorce, all kinds of changes, for better or for worse in life. But through all of it, God still wants to be our dwelling place, our, our sanctuary, our home, the one that we run to when we must. He even calls us to draw near to him. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What do we need sometimes? Rest. Is that the Christ that, that you know this morning? Is that the God you worship this morning? Do you see him that way? No matter how long or short life might seem to us, it's nothing in comparison to God who is eternal forever. And so first, we must have the right perspective of God. Secondly, we must have the right perspective of life. We must have the right perspective of life itself. And the tone of Moses' writing seems to change just a bit, to me at least, as he goes beyond verse 2, he says, You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They're like a sleep. In the morning, they're like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, and in the evening it is cut down, and it withers. Life, Moses said, returns to dust. And we are dust. God spoke to, um, to Adam in Genesis 3, and he said, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are. And to dust you will return. Again, God knows what I am, what we are. That I'm dust. What do they say, or they used to say at some funerals? Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. Well, unless Christ returns for us in the air for his people, then our bodies are going to just crumble one day. They're going to return to dust one day. 
See, to us, duration of life is so important, and it's so short, but length of years to God, who's eternal, is really nothing. It's nothing in comparison to us. They're like yesterday when it's past, like a watch in the night. A watch in the night was just a, a four-hour block of time. What is so long to us is nothing to God. It's so quick to God. And how, how quickly life just flies by. Uh, one of our granddaughters recently celebrated her, her sweet 16th birthday. How'd she get there? What happened to those years? We're going to our, one of our grandson's birthday parties today, his sixth birthday party. How'd that happen? My children are in their mid-40s. No, they can't be. They can't be because I can't remember those years now because they've, they've flown by so quickly. And again, if that hasn't happened to you, hang on a while, all right? It will. It will. Just in, in our midst here, we celebrated a few birthdays recently, didn't we? Somebody hit the magic age of 40. Oh my, 40. A mere child. And on the same day, we celebrated somebody who hit 90. 90. And then there was someone who was 80. You know, everything and in between. How quickly life goes on. A thousand years, Moses says, like nothing in God's sight. Incredibly long period of time. Columbus came to the New World only about 500 years ago. Our country hasn't had a history of 250 years yet. And you talk about a thousand years, but all those years are like nothing to God, they're like yesterday. To him. Life to God at its best is short. It's so short. Solomon realized the same thing in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's in chapter 1 where he says, one generation comes, another generation leaves. It's like standing on the seashore at the beach and you watch a wave come in and then a wave goes out. One generation comes in, new, fresh. Then another generation goes out. And on and on and on the cycle goes. So quickly. Grass flourishes in the morning, but then it's cut down and it dries quickly. According to Psalm 90. You ever cut your lawn and you don't, uh, you don't bag the grass? You just leave it on top of the lawn. What happens? It just dries out, dries up so very quickly. Moses and other writers said that's what life is like. It's fresh, it's new, it's cut down, and it's gone so quickly. We must have the right perspective of God. We must have the right perspective of, of life, our lives themselves. But thirdly, we must have the right perspective of ourself. The right perspective of ourself. Verse 7, we've been consumed in your anger. By your wrath, we are terrified. 
You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Secret sins, think of those in your own life that are exposed to the God who sees all and knows all in the light of, of his countenance. All our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh, like a sigh with trouble. Why? Why the wrath of God? Why is, why is life like that for us? Why is it ever changing? Why is life so brief that it's, that it's over before we even realize it? Why death? Why heartache? Why loss? Why problems in life and trials in life? What's the problem here? What's the matter? See, originally, it wasn't a problem. When God created us, He didn't create us to be mortal, but immortal. We were designed to live forever, never to grow old, never to die. Never having to say goodbye to someone. No graves at all. Nothing like that. As the Westminster Catechism puts it, man was created to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what it was meant to be like. That's what we were created to be and to be like. But what happened? Why did it all change? Well, it all started with something God told Adam one day. In the Garden of Eden, placed man in the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die." Everything is yours. Everything. Enjoy everything except there's, there's one prohibition. Only one thing, Adam. One test for you. Don't eat of the one fruit of one particular tree. Well, of course, you know what they did. Adam and Eve willfully chose to disobey God. They thought they knew better. And they fell. They fell. Everything changed. And that brings into play the, the text that uh, Rich read for us from, from Romans chapter 5. Paul really gives clarity and clarification to it. Therefore, just as through one man, just one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus spread, death spread to all men, because all have sinned. One simple act of disobedience, and everything changed. Life became for us what it is today, because of that act of disobedience. And they died. Adam and Eve died. Now, they didn't die physically, immediately, but suddenly, they were, they were cut off from the very life and fellowship with God. But then their, their bodies, their lives began to change as well. They began 
the aging process, they began slowly to grow old and decay, and they died. Yeah, they died spiritually, and they would die physically. But not only that, everything in creation died. Everything that God created began to decay and die. And what's worse, the very, you know, Adam's very nature, his inward man changed. It became corrupt, became sinful. And that, that base human nature was passed on to you and to me. You know, I got mine from my daddy and from my mom. And I passed it on to my children. And they passed it on to theirs and so on and so on. To make matters worse. Life is so short because of that. But we live, we live as though we're going to live forever. Don't we? We live as though nothing's going to happen to us. We live as though it's going to go on forever. But then Moses gives some limits to life. He looks at life and says, well, the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength, they are 80, or some more, or some less. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it's soon cut off and we're gone. We fly away. Psalm 139, the the psalmist says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Who controls life? Who controls the years of your life? You don't. As much care as you would give toward it, you don't. God does. God is sovereign over the years of my life, of my existence. It's as if God holds my life and the years of my life in his hands. He is sovereign and in control. Each of us, I think, have a, a, built-in, a built-in time fuse, so to speak. And some of those fuses burn down slowly. But some burn more quickly. But your time fuse is burning. It's burning down. And every, every birth marks the, the lighting of that fuse. And that's when it begins the countdown toward exiting this life. But we live so carelessly and we, we waste so much time doing things that matter so little, don't we? We all do. We need to have the right perspective of ourselves. But what's this all mean to us? What's the conclusion of this this whole matter? Moses puts it well. In verse uh, 12, he says, Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us. What's the conclusion of the matter? We need to ask God to help us to number our days. In other words, to live our days, our years, wisely. 
Even Paul in the book of Ephesians says, redeem the times, redeem the days, because the days are, are evil. And Moses talks about mercy. And certainly we need the mercy of God. God, by his mercy, has allowed that fuse that is your life to, to burn yet another day, one more day. It was even burning down a little bit more during the night as you were sleeping. You know, why, are, why are we so confident that we will see tomorrow? I'm planning my summer now. I'm looking forward to doing some things during the summer days. Why are we so confident of that? Solomon said, don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth, because my life is not in my hands. My life and yours are in God's hands. Perhaps you are here this morning and you are still, you still have never come to the point of trusting Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. Now, we all need to remember something, but if that fits the category you're in this morning, then you need to remember something. You're living on borrowed time. We are all living on borrowed time. Your fuse could burn out quickly, unexpectedly. Just like 13-year-old Gigi Bryant and her young father, Kobe's, did. Because death is coming. And if Christ is not your Savior yet, you have nothing to look forward to except eternal judgment. Nothing to look forward to except that. That's why Scripture says, now is the accepted time. That's why Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. It, there's, there's a sense of urgency in those Scriptures. Scripture treats the, the brevity of life with a sense of urgency. We don't. We don't see it that way. We'll live forever. We think we will. We see it differently. So now is the time to, to turn from sin, turn to Christ, the one who died for your sin, the one who gave his life and became your sin and paid the penalty of your sin. Today, now is the time to ask Christ to forgive you of your sin and to give you the free gift, the absolute free gift of eternal life. So Moses prays for mercy. He prays for, for, for grace. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us and so on. We've all wasted We've all wasted a lot of yesterdays, haven't we? We all have. We have become, in our generation today, we have become so preoccupied with self, selfies, and being entertained. You know, there's a, there's a whole world of entertainment and self-indulgence in, in our fingertips, my iPhone. It's all I need in life for pleasure, enjoyment. And we live in such a celebrity-driven culture. We need to know what our favorite celebrities are doing. Why? Why is it so important? Are we living, are we living vicariously through them? We waste so much time 
then what about serving God? Where does that fit in for we who know him this morning? What about serving God? Notice how Moses concludes his prayer. The second part of verse 17, establish the work of our hands for us. And he repeats it. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, make my life count. Make my life count for you. So let me ask you this morning, as a Christian sitting in one of these pews today, what are you doing to make your life count? What are we doing to make our lives count for Christ? How are you serving him? How are you serving him here, in this place, in this church, and, and through this church? And how long can, can any of us keep on saying, you know, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Maybe next month. Maybe, maybe next year, you know? But I'll think about it. Meanwhile, the fuse of life is burning down. We put it off. And meanwhile, time just flies by. Friend and I, on our bedroom wall, we have a plaque. And you've heard this phrase before. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And to me, to live is Christ. Can each of us say that with surety? You're familiar with the story of John Beekman? Great story. Let me close with this. John Beekman was a missionary. He's been with the Lord over a great number of years now. He's from New Jersey, North Jersey, up in Midland Park. He was a part of the Midland Park Reformed Church. Well, he became a missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute of Chicago, but he was given a death sentence by his doctor. And let me read to you what this writer says. He had a serious heart condition, and it was unlikely he would live very long at all. He had one chance, a very slim chance. They could insert a little plastic valve in his heart. Remember, this is long before common heart surgery. He had one chance, a slim one. They could insert this plastic valve in his heart. At that time, only two other people had survived that operation. He might, he might, if he was careful, become survivor number three. And Moody Science Films actually made a movie by that name regarding John Beekman's life. Survivor number three was the title. But once that valve was inserted, John Beekman counted his days and he applied his heart to wisdom. Instead of slowing life down to a careful pace and hoarding his days like a miser, he threw himself into pioneer missionary work among the coal Indians in the jungles of southern Mexico. His story became one of determination and courage. He lived with one eye fixed firmly on that zero hour announced by his doctors, but the other eye fixed on forever an eternity. And he and his wife Elaine ignored all the doctor's warnings. They plunged through steaming jungles. They lived in primitive conditions. They reduced the cold language to writing. They translated the Bible into that Indian tongue. They taught the cold people to read. They led them to Christ. 
and they saw a new civilization emerge where once there had been only savagery, paganism, and despair. John Beekman trained over 100 coal Indians to become pastors in that part of the country. Did his life, did his life count or not? He eventually did die of heart failure, but he applied his days to wisdom. We're all living on borrowed time, just as John Beekman does. We're all living on borrowed time. Let's make it count. Make it count. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. My Father, our circumstances may be all different in each of our lives, but for each of us, one thing is true. Life is just speeding by us. But help us, Lord, by your grace today to make our lives count for Christ. To have no regrets one day when we stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus. Might we do it with great confidence and joy because we have served you effectively. That's our prayer this morning. By your grace, in Christ's name, amen.